Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at a historical location that also has a haunted reputation. So come with me as together we enter the strange and creepy world of the unexplained and keep history fun along the way. everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I'm your host Ariel and today we have another listener suggestion episode from not one but two listeners. A haunted building at Fort Sam Houston suggested by Ben and the haunted town of Galveston, Texas suggested by Carissa. Thank you both so much for your suggestions. This episode is going to be fun packed with all kinds of important and interesting history along with unique and creepy ghost stories. I can't wait to get started but first I hope that you all are finding ways to stay cool. A big chunk of the world has been hit with a massive heat wave that is affecting people all over the globe. If you are in the affected area, I hope that you're okay and you're staying safe. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a little bit of housekeeping I have to go through first. First off, I have found my three Halloween episodes. Thank you all for your suggestions. I have settled on the Lizzie Borden house, the Lollery Mansion, and Loftus Hall. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you prematurely. You will have to wait until October to hear the terrifying backstories and ghostly activities of these three locations. In the meantime, for the month of August, we will be doing a back-to-school style episode covering some of the top haunted colleges in the United States. For the month of September, I'm still working on it because I've lost my listener story episode. Before I moved, I took everyone's stories that people had sent me and I put them into a Word document and now I cannot find that Word document to save my life. I don't know if it got deleted in the move on the desktop or maybe on the hard drive I backed it up on or what, but I cannot find it. So I do apologize. I'm still looking for it every day. I have downtime. Um, If I ever come upon it, you guys will be the first to know I'll make a new episode quickly. In the meantime, if you know that you've sent me a listener story and you haven't heard it on my last listener story episode, please check inside your sent folder and see if you might still have a copy of it. And if you do, would you mind resending it to me so I can add it to a new Word document that this time hopefully won't get deleted. If you have a true paranormal experience and you'd like to hear it on another listener story episode, please send it to me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. I have a link down below in my show notes to that email as well. That was not the only Word document I lost because I also lost my haunted colleges list and a few of you guys had suggested haunted colleges. So if you have a haunted college that you would like to hear, please make sure to email that to me at my email. Again, link to that email is down below in the show notes. So as always, I wanted to thank my Patreons. You guys help keep the lights on here at Historically Haunted. I have many new Patreons to thank, and they are Carissa, Rose, Matthew, Candace, Lisa, Tamara, Joe, Waylon, Emmett, Marissa, Jennifer H. and Jennifer L., Tommy, Martin, Misfit Apparitions, Valerie, Viking2713, and Kevin. Thank you so much, everyone. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out the link to my page down below in the show notes. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, photos of historical places I talk about on my episodes, and you will get a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment. Even just one dollar helps, and I appreciate it so much. I also have some new people to thank for leaving me an iTunes review. They are Xander08W, Ellen's O, Beautiful Chaotic Designs, Movie Gal 73, Rochelle Coeli, 
Bob92841, Blue Eyes and Freckles, and Cena2412. Those are usernames, so I probably mispronounced those, but thank you guys so much for your reviews nonetheless. I really appreciate it. Leaving a written review on iTunes is a quick and free way to help support the show. The more reviews I receive, the more it will help the show pop up when people are searching for a new paranormal podcast to try. You can also leave a starred review on Spotify, and that will help support the show as well. All right, that is all I had for housekeeping today, so let's get on with this show. This is going to be a long one, so I hope that you guys are ready. It took me a lot longer to make this episode because not only are the locations super haunted, but the history is so important. Especially in Galveston's case, the history is rarely told. When I started doing the history of Galveston, my first thought in my head was, how have I never heard about this in history class? And I've taken a lot of U.S. history, so it really surprised me that this just must have skipped over my mind or I never learned about this incident. As soon as I started looking into the history of Galveston, that's when I realized that this one was going to take me a lot longer to finish than I thought, but I really think it's going to be worth it because I felt like it was just such an important story and no one has probably heard about it except for people that live down in Texas. I don't know if this one glossed over me in history class or if it was even mentioned in my history books or what. That's when I realized that I was going to take the time to do this episode right. And I think this is my first episode in the state of Texas, so I'm glad I took the extra time because like we say here at Historically Haunted, to understand the ghosts, you must first understand the history. So you better saddle up those horses because we are going to Texas. Houston is located in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio began as a Spanish mission and outpost in 1718, making it the oldest city in the state. Today, the city averages more than 39 million visitors a year. Its number one tourist attraction is the Alamo, the Spanish mission and outpost that later became Fort Alamo during the Texas Revolution. The city had five Spanish missions in all. The Spanish influence is seen throughout the city, having the largest number of Spanish colonial architecture in North America. The Spanish claimed land in the New World, naming it New Spain beginning in the 1700s. New Spain eventually included all of Mexico, Central America, to the Isthmus of Panama. They also claimed a great deal of the West Indies. In today's United States, Spain claimed California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. Mexico officially won its independence from Spain on September 27, 1821, and their territories came under the rule of the Mexican government. The government allowed for people from the United States to settle in their new territory as long as they became Mexican citizens. Over the next 10 years, the migration of the United States citizens to Texas increased. By the early 1830s, 30s, Americans living in Texas decided that they wanted to be independent from the Mexican government. During this time, a man named Sam Houston moved to Texas. Houston had previously been involved in politics in the United States, having served in the U.S. House of Representatives and he was the governor of Tennessee at one point. He relocated to Texas in 1832 and witnessed the increasing unrest and violence between Anglio settlers and the Mexican government. Houston spoke out in favor of Texas becoming a separate 
independent state. Settlers saw him as a leader and chose him to be the commander-in-chief of the Texas Army. The Texas Revolution began in the town of Gonzales on October 2, 1835. The Texan volunteers defeated the Mexican Army and then marched to San Antonio, where they were able to take control of the entire town. A few months later, a much larger Mexican army returned to San Antonio and defeated the Texans at the Battle of the Alamo. I plan on doing a complete episode on the Alamo, and I will give a detailed history about that in a future episode. Eventually, Sam Houston and his troops captured the leader of the Mexican army on April 21, 1836, bringing an end to the conflict. Sam Houston was a hero to the eyes of the Texans, and he became involved in politics again, serving as president of the Republic of Texas from 1836 to 1838. He then served as a representative in the Texas House from 1839 to 1840, and he was president again from 1841 to 1844. Texas joined the Union on December 29, 1845, and Sam Houston became one of the state's two U.S. Senators. He served from 1846 to 1859. He was a strong supporter of the Union, and even though he was a slave owner and defended slavery in the South, he continually voted against expanding slavery slavery into new territories. He was only one of two Southern senators to vote against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This caused many Texans to call for his resignation, but he refused and served out his term. Houston was elected governor of Texas in 1859. He opposed leaving the Union, and when Texas voted to secede, Houston refused to swear allegiance to the new Confederate States of America. The Texas Convention replaced him with Lieutenant Governor Edward Clark. Houston's son, Sam Jr., ended up fighting for the Confederate during the Civil War. He was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh. Houston moved his family to Huntersville, Texas after being removed as governor. He died of pneumonia on July 28, 1863, when he was 70 years old. Okay, so now we got some background about Texas, and we got a lot of background about the namesake of the fort, but what about the fort itself? What's now called Fort Sam Houston began in October of 1845 as Camp Almas near the Alamo. It was also known as the Post at San Antonio. The United States Army rented several buildings in the San Antonio area to be used as headquarters, officer housing, and a supplies depot. During the Civil War, all of the buildings were taken over by Confederate military units. The U.S. Army returned in 1865 following the Civil War. The Army decided that a new fort was needed, and the City Council of San Antonio offered up about 93 acres of land two and a half miles northeast of the Alamo for the War Department to build their new fort. The land was named Government Hill, and a quadrangle was built in the late 1870s. By 1891, 43 acres and 60 buildings were added, making it the second largest army fort in the country. The fort was renamed Fort Sam Houston in 1890 in honor of General Sam Houston. The post continued increasing throughout the years. During World Wars I and II, thousands of troops passed through the fort. After World War II, the Army chose to house the main medical training facility at Fort Sam Houston. Broke General Hospital became one of the Army's most prominent medical centers. All of the medical services and trainees were housed in a variety of buildings at the fort. 
Even though they weren't housed in one specific building, the servicers were considered the Broke Army Medical Center, or BAMC. In 1987, construction began on a new hospital. The new state-of-the-art medical facility was dedicated in 1996. Today, the fort covers about 3,000 acres and is the location of the Army Medical Command headquarters. Fort Sam Houston is the largest military medical training facility in the world. Both the Army and Navy use the fort for medical training. The official name for the fort today is Joint Based San Antonio. The post was designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1975. There are more than 900 historic buildings on the site. The quadrangle is made from limestone and encloses a grassy square. Today, the quadrangle is open to the public and there are two museums on the property. The Fort Sam Houston Museum focuses on history of the armed forces in Texas, and the U.S. Medical Department Museum has displays of Army medical equipment and American prisoner of war artifacts. The site also has the Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery. Between 1934 and 1939, the National Cemetery system was expanded due to the increased veteran population. By 1941, the cemetery covered 25 acres. Now it has over 330 acres. It continues to provide burial services for qualifying servicemen and women along with their families. This fort has a lot of history and it wouldn't surprise anyone to know that there are some ghost stories attached to it. I did find a few stories of people claiming to see apparitions while they were walking to or from their barracks, but the old BAMC building seems to be the center of paranormal activity at this fort. Because this is still an active military fort, I had a harder time finding uh, paranormal stories, but I did find one article that really helped, and this is where almost all of these stories are from. So if you are interested and you want to learn more, I have the link down below in my show notes to all of my sources for this episode. Reports of this paranormal activity began shortly after the U.S. Army South moved into the old hospital in 2003. For 60 years, this building operated as a hospital. Many people died and suffered from injuries and illnesses. Most of the ghost stories come from the lower levels of this building, which was once the location of the hospital's trauma and emergency rooms. People have reported the feeling that they were not alone, being watched, and some noticed that objects on their desks would be in different spots after returning from a break or an errand. Sometimes things were just simply gone or broken when they returned. Once a sergeant who went down to the basement claims to have seen glowing eyes in the dark. He immediately took off back up the stairs and refused to ever go down there again. The fifth floor was used as a psychiatric ward. Here, people have heard laughing and crying in the late evenings. A master sergeant had quite a story to tell about an experience he had late on a Sunday night in October. He needed to catch up on some paperwork so he knew that he would be the only one at the building. He parked and headed inside. On the way in, he noticed lights flickering in a strange pattern up on the seventh floor. As he continued, he almost stepped on a black cat, which added eeriness to his night. Once he entered the building, he headed down the stairs to his workstation on the lower level. All of a sudden, all of the lights went off and the emergency lights in the stairwell did not turn on. He stopped in his tracks and then heard a voice say, go back home, Master Sergeant, you're not welcome here. Then all the lights turned back on at once. He continued to the lower level and began his work on his computer. He believed that if he ignored it, it would all go away. While he was at his computer, the lights began flickering on and off and then his computer screen turned off and turned back on again. 
That's when he decided to log off right then and there and left the building in a hurry. To this day, he doesn't know what was going on that night, but he does feel like the building is haunted. never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, 1 in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. Galveston, Texas is thought to be the most haunted island in the United States. When I started my research for this location, I had no idea just how tragic the history of this island was. Not only was it a hub for bloodthirsty pirates, the island also suffered the biggest death toll from a Category 4 hurricane in U.S. history. It took me much longer to write the script for this location because I wanted to pack as much important history as I could into the episode. So I hope that you guys are ready for a good history lesson paired with some super creepy ghost stories. Today, the city of Galveston, Texas has a population of about 50,000 people and it's located on Galveston Island. The Barrier Reef Island is just two miles from the mainland and about 50 miles southeast of Houston. The island is approximately 27 miles long and only three miles across at its widest point. Before we jump into several haunted hotspots, let's turn back the clock so we can get a clear picture of how this island became such a popular tourist destination. For many years, two indigenous tribes lived on the island, the Akokisha and the Karakawas. They camped, hunted, and fished on the island. They also used it to bury their dead. The first Europeans to come to the island were French and Spanish explorers during the 16th and 17th centuries. Spanish explorer Cabeza de Vaca shipwrecked on the island in November 1528. Galveston Bay and Galveston Island were named in honor of Spanish governor Bernardo de Galvez in July of 1786. The first European settler was French pirate John Lafitte. He started his life of crime in New Orleans with his brother Pierre around 1805 
peddling stolen goods. By the time he started his ship raiding business, the golden age of piracy had passed. In the early 1800s, the United States had put a ban on trade with Great Britain and France due to the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. Stores in New Orleans started to run out of goods to sell, and around this same time, importing slaves into the United States became illegal. Lafitte took advantage of these shortages and began smuggling stolen goods along with slaves into southern Louisiana. Lafitte thought himself as a privateer rather than a pirate. A privateer is someone hired by a government to capture enemy ships. The port city of Cargantina, Colombia, had rebelled against Spain and gave Lafayette a letter allowing him to capture Spanish ships along with the goods and slaves that were on board. The United States did not recognize Cartagena as a legitimate government and charged Lafitte and his men with piracy. In 1810, Jean and Pierre moved their headquarters to a swampland bay that was located to the south of New Orleans called Barataria. The bayous reach into the Gulf of Mexico and the Barataria Bay was a deep water harbor. This was a perfect place for him and his men to hide in the swamps and avoid capture by customs officials and soldiers. Lafitte also held auctions in this location for planters and merchants. The United States government viewed Lafitte as quite an annoyance and they tried to capture him many times. However, during the War of 1812, Lafitte became an unlikely ally of the United States. The fighting with the British was mainly taking place on the east coast or northern border of the United States. Lafitte was approached by British military officers in September of 1814, asking him for his help to attack U.S. ships off the Gulf of Mexico. Instead, Lafitte chose to warn the United States. He tried to make a deal that if he and his men helped in the fighting, they would all receive a pardon after the war was over. At first, this idea was rejected, but eventually General Andrew Jackson agreed. Lafitte provided ammunition, cannoneers, and the knowledge of the bayous and the swampy areas. This help contributed to the Americans' victories in the New Orleans area, ending with the Battle of New Orleans on January 8, 1815. President James Madison did give pardons to Lafitte and his men in February of 1815. And after getting this grand pardon, what did Lafitte do with his newfound freedom? Well, well, he returned to smuggling, and then he moved to Galveston Island. He built a small settlement on the island in 1817. There were about 1,000 people living in the village. From 1817 to 1820, he used it as a base for raiding Spanish merchant ships that commonly sailed into the Gulf of Mexico. There is a natural harbor at Galveston, which made it a good place for him to collect his loot. Lafitte ended up burning his town down when he was forced to leave by the United States Navy, who got sick of his antics. It's rumored that his treasure is buried somewhere on the island and people still hunt for it to this day. Canadian fur trader Michael Menard came to Texas in 1829 and became interested in purchasing land. One of his purchases was 4,600 acres at the eastern end of Galveston Island in December of 1836. For a short time, Galveston was the capital of the New Republic of Texas. In 1838, Menard started the Galveston City Company along with other businessmen. By 1839, Galveston was one of the busiest ports west of New Orleans, and it was the largest city in Texas, with a population of about 7,200 people by 1860. 75% of the state's exported cotton was shipped through the port. Beginning in the 1840s, many European immigrants began coming through the port city. In particular, waves of people came from Germany, Italy, and Greece. Galveston became a super wealthy city. They were able to 
to have paved streets, gas lights, and a railroad bridge that was built to the mainland. When the Civil War started in April 1861, President Lincoln ordered a blockade of southern ports. The U.S. fleet only had 42 warships, and they struggled to keep southern ships from leaving their ports. Because of this, shipping continued at Galveston almost as usual. The only difference was cotton was shipped to Havana and other ports, and then these ships brought back military supplies and other goods for the Confederacy. The Union attacked the island on October 4, 1862, with the Union taking control. Six Union ships patrolled the harbor, and the waterfront was watched over by 260 Massachusetts soldiers. Union troops were able to control the island for a time until January 1, 1863, when Confederate troops came across an abandoned railroad bridge and were able to capture the Union soldiers in the Battle of Galveston. The Confederacy remained in control until the war ended in spring of 1865. On June 18, 1865, 2,000 federal troops arrived on the ship the USS Fort Jackson, led by General Edmund Kirby. On the following day, General Kirby made the announcement that the war was over and that enslaved African Americans were now free. This announcement came two years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This event is known as Juneteenth and has become a U.S. federal holiday in 2021. Galveston experienced several yellow fever outbreaks during its history. From 1839 to 1867, there were nine outbreaks. In 1853, 523 people died during an outbreak, but the worst one happened in 1867, while the port was still recovering from the Civil War. The epidemic started in July, and by August, there were 30 deaths a day. Many people fled the island, which unfortunately caused the disease to spread inland. About 1,000 people died during the epidemic of 1867. During the Reconstruction period, the city was able to return to its prosperity, earning back its name, the Queen City of the Gulf. The Strand area of the city became known as the Wall Street of the Southwest. Riches were made in cotton, mercantile trade, banking, flour and grain mills, railroads, real estate, publishing, and printing, and of course, shipping. Many firsts for the state of Texas happened in Galveston. There are over 100. Some of the firsts for Texas include the first opera house, post office, hospital, medical college, golf course, public library, daily newspaper, and chamber of commerce. Everything looked bright for the now 37,788 people living in the city as the 19th century was coming to a close, but Mother Nature was about to inflict a horrible blow to the island. On September 8, 1900, a Category 4 hurricane hit Galveston. The hurricane still ranks as the number one deadliest natural disaster in American history. The storm had been picked up by meteorologists in early September. Scientists in Cuba were very good at tracking storms in the Caribbean. They were aware that a hurricane had passed north of Cuba and was tracking toward the Gulf of Mexico. The U.S. Weather Bureau in Washington predicted that the storm was going to pass over Florida and then move up. Up to New England. The U.S. Weather Bureau was just 10 years old and their hurricane science wasn't very developed. Its director, Willis Moore, apparently was so jealous of the Cubans' ability that he stopped the collection of data from Cuba to the U.S. Also, he established a slow path of communication for using hurricane warnings. He required that all U.S. forecasters go through Washington and were not allowed to use any warnings not made by the United States Weather Office. Two days before the hurricane landed, 
landed at Galveston, the chief weather bureau observer in Galveston, Isaac Klein, began to speculate that the forecast from Washington was wrong. He attempted to warn the city, but it was too late. The highest point in the island at this time was just under nine feet above sea level. As the hurricane approached in the early morning hours of September, the hurricane force winds created a storm surge of 15 feet. The water washed over the whole island and the surge began flooding the city. Water rose at steady pace from 3 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. the next day. Water continued to flow into parts of the city until 8.30. Nine inches of rain fell on Galveston in 24 hours. Equipment measuring wind speeds were blown off the building after recording up to 100 miles per hour. But with eyewitness accounts, it is estimated that the wind speeds had reached over 140 miles per hour. Very few places survived wind damage, and all of the streets suffered water damage. Every single home suffered some kind of damage, and 3,636 homes were destroyed. The death toll is estimated to have been between 6,000 to as high as 12,000 people. In order to prevent another disaster, the city decided to raise the city and construct a seawall. Construction started in 1902 and was completed in 1904. The new concrete seawall was about three miles long and 15 feet above the average low tide level. The seawall was extended over the years and today it is 10 miles long. While the seawall was being built, workers began the slow process of raising the city. Between 1903 and 1911, about 2,000 buildings were raised, along with streetcar tracks, fire hydrants, water pipes, and other utilities. In all, about 500 city blocks were raised from 8 to 17 feet. Also helping with the recovery of the city was a group of businessmen who were able to raise $1 million to build the Galvez Hotel. The hotel opened in 1911 after construction on the seawall was completed. The rebuilt causeway connecting the island to the mainland was also completed. Galveston never did recover to be the leading economic port that it used to be before the hurricane. During the 19 1920s and early 1930s, the city became a tourist destination. When its clubs ignored prohibition and anti-gambling laws, the clubs offered entertainment, gambling, liquor, and brothels. The wealthy from Houston and other parts of the U.S. came to Galveston. There were also boardwalks and amusement parks built on piers and along the shoreline. There was so much illegal activity here that it was dubbed Sin City of the Gulf. By 1950, there was a crackdown on illegal gambling, and by 1957, gambling was stopped on the island altogether. In 1957, the Galveston Historical Foundation began preserving the city's historic buildings. This led to the five-block Strand Historic District in downtown Galveston. Many of the Greek Revival and Victorian buildings survived the hurricane and date back to the late 1800s. Today, the island continues to be a popular beach town destination. There are 32 miles of coastline to enjoy, and some of the things people can enjoy on the water include a dolphin sighting tour and a jet boat thrill ride. If you'd rather stick to land, there are e-bikes and Segway tours. The Strand District is a popular area to visit, since the old buildings now house restaurants, antique shops, museums, art galleries, and clubs. 
The Galveston Railroad Museum is located here, and there are a variety of walking historical tours to take, as well as ghost tours to choose from. The Galveston Historic Pleasure Pier offers several carnival thrill rides and midway games. Many of these rides send you over the water. I hope this history gives you guys a good setting for the kinds of hauntings that we will be dealing with today. While Galveston is a bustling tourist destination, the history of this town is so tragic. When I covered Savannah, Georgia, one thing stood out to me. All the articles I came across claimed that Savannah was the most haunted city in America. And while that may be true, I would argue that Galveston ties for first place. In fact, many articles I have read had Galveston at the top of the list. Now, if you're in the paranormal research world like I am, you would know that many places claim that they are the most haunted in the world, in the state, in the country, etc. So I always take those titles with a grain of salt whenever I go into my research. But when it comes to a place like Galveston, especially knowing the history, I think this could in fact be one of, if not the most haunted city in the United States of America. That kind of traumatic death leaves an imprint on the land and the newer buildings on top of it. Now, I can't cover all of the locations because from what I can find, the whole island is haunted. It's hard to find any building without at least one ghost story attached to it. Everything from the highest point to the water's edge seems to be haunted with ghost stories of pirates, indigenous peoples, the spirits of the once enslaved, yellow fever victims, murderers, and the most seen ghosts, victims of the devastating hurricane. Paranormal enthusiasts flock to Galveston, making a big chunk of the tourist business today. And in this episode, we are going to go on a nice long audio walking tour of many paranormal hotspots. But be prepared because the ghosts on this island like to be seen, and there are so many of them that it can be hard to keep track of who is a friend with you on the tour and who is suddenly standing next to you in period clothing. be starting off our long walking tour at the Menard House. This house is one of the oldest existing buildings on the island. It's a white two-story Greek revival style home with four large columns in the front. It was built by Michael B. Menard, one of the founders of Galveston in 1838. Michael passed away in 1856. After his death, different family members owned the home until putting the home up for sale in 1879. In 1880, the city's police chief, Edwin Ketchum, bought the house and his family owned it until the 1970s. After this, no one lived in the home for a time and the house fell into disrepair and was almost demolished. Luckily, the house was saved when Pat and Fred Burns bought the home in 1994 and restoring it back to its former glory. They also partnered with the Galveston Historical Foundation to help get it done and today it's a museum and event space. Most of the furniture and furnishings date from the 1800s to the 1850s. Someone who lived in the home in the late 19th century was John Sidney Thrasher. 
Thrasher owned the home after marrying Menard's widow, who was Menard's fourth wife. According to local legend, Thrasher liked to hold seances in his parlor that were open to the public. It was said that he held them often with different people each night and apparently he conjured up many ghosts that now haunt the property. One of the most common reports is people see children in period dress playing in the front garden. The spot where they play is where many storm victims were buried in a large grave. The children have been seen at night and day running, skipping, and playing games until they vanish. People who have stayed in the night in the home have reported some eerie moments. Many visitors have reported the feeling of being watched and the presence of someone in an empty room. People have also heard distant laughter <laughs> when the home was empty. Objects like to move on their own, and some have seen apparitions of a young woman weeping. It's believed to be the ghost of one of Menard's adopted daughters. She has been seen sitting at the bottom of the grand staircase crying and acting very upset. Many people think she never got over the heartbreak after being jilted by the love of her life. Other reports from the home include random cold spots, footsteps, and distant voices. As we learned in the history portion, this island was once a hot spot for the wealthy, so we will be hearing about a lot of mansions, manors, and grand houses today. I will have pictures available for my Patreons as well, but if you are not a Patreon member, I encourage you to Google all of these houses so that you can see what they look like. Or you can go down to my sources in the show notes to each website that I use for this episode. They have some great pictures as well and more history if you want to learn more. Some of these houses are truly incredible and me describing them does not do them justice. Just like my next location, Moody Mansion. In the late 1800s, a woman named Narcissa Wills dreamed of owning a grand home. She was the wife of a wealthy cotton broker named Richard Wills, after all. So why would someone with that much wealth not grant her her biggest wish? Narcissa's dream, however, was shot down when she realized that her husband was pretty cheap and preferred to save money for his 10 children upon his death. So he built a modest home on Broadway Street. When he passed away in 1892, Narcissa decided to make her own dream come true. She had the original home torn down and had a massive mansion constructed on top of it. This caused her to be estranged from her 10 children until her death in 1899. They were angry with her for taking their inheritance and using it to build her elaborate mansion. Because of this, Narcissa lived alone in a vast home with only one housekeeper who she paid well. She gave the woman $1,000 a year, and this was three times the wages of a housekeeper during that time period. After her death in 1899, the family put the house up for sale and many people were interested in it. However, the devastating hurricane in 1900 wiped out almost everything on the island and had a large death toll. This caused many wealthy survivors to flee the island, pulling their bids for the surviving house, and Narcissa's family was forced to put it up for auction. It was then purchased by banker William Moody, son of a wealthy entrepreneur who had his hands in everything from politics to law, including operating a prosperous cotton gin. William Moody bought the large mansion for only $20,000, when the house should have been worth $100,000. That would have been worth more than $3 million in today's money. So Moody really lucked out with his purchase and the name changed to Moody Mansion. 
It stayed in the Moody family until the 1980s when it was used as a museum dedicated to not just Moody's family, but Galveston's rich history. Not long after becoming a museum, it was added to the National Registry of Historic Places, and the building was damaged by Hurricane Ike in 2008. Luckily, the city was able to save the basement area, which suffered major water damage due to flooding. Today, many visitors to the mansion have reported hearing the sound of disembodied voices and footsteps. Many believe these to be from Narcissa, who has continued to linger in her dream home way after her death. If you ever go to the museum, keep your cameras out and take as many pictures as possible. Ghosts love to show themselves in photographs in empty rooms and hallways. People have gone back to look at pictures to find dark shadows in strange shapes, wisps that look like smoke, and ghostly faces looking back at them. These different figures are believed to be the spirits from the 1900 hurricane. Our next location has the saddest backstory in my opinion and it's pretty disturbing what happened here so this is a warning that you might be as shocked and sad as I was to learn about this location's history. So this is the sad true story of St. Mary's Orphanage Asylum. In my history portion of this podcast I mentioned that Galveston was the site for many firsts for the state of Texas. One of those was the first Catholic hospital in Texas named Charity Hospital. It was started by Bishop Claude Dubois and three French Catholic sisters who were members of the Order of Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word. The four of them came from Lyon, France to start the hospital in Galveston. Bishop Dubois bought the land located at Market and 8th Street. The two-story hospital was built on the former site of Fort Scurry, which was active during the Civil War. Charity Hospital opened to patients on April 1, 1867. Just three months after opening, the city experienced a yellow fever outbreak. The outbreak began in July and did not end until November 1867. The hospital was filled to overflowing with patients. About 8,000 people were living in the city at this time, and it's estimated that 1,000 residents died during the epidemic. The sisters decided to open an orphanage and school for the children who were suddenly left parentless during the outbreak. More buildings were built on the property in order to house the orphans and more patients. The hospital continued to grow and was renamed St. Mary's Infirmary in 1869. The number of orphans continued to increase due to other yellow fever outbreaks and Bishop Dubois decided a separate orphanage was needed. In January 1874, the bishop bought 35 acres of beachfront property located three miles west of Galveston. A house was already on the property known as the Green Bayou Place. 28 orphans moved into the Green Bayou Place on February 1874. The new orphanage was named St. Mary's Orphan Asylum. A new two-story building was added to the property later that year. Girls lived in the new building and boys were housed in the Green Bayou Place. Girls remained at the orphanage until they were 18, while the boys usually were sent away to St. Mary's College when they turned 10 years old. The orphanage experienced a fire in 1875 when one of the old buildings was destroyed. Luckily, no one died in the fire. During the month of September in 1875, a bad storm totally destroyed Green Bayou Place, in addition to damaging the girls' residence. Charitable donations allowed the orphanage to make repairs and continue operations. Just before 1900, a new bishop decided it would be a better idea to sell the orphanage and build a new one closer to the middle of the city. 
Unfortunately, this did not take place before the infamous hurricane in 1900. Normally, orphanages get a bad rap when you look into the history, but from what I could find, the sisters actually cared deeply for the children under their care. And when they went to bed on September 7th, 1900, they had no idea of the horrors that they would wake up to. One thing that makes me so angry about this story is the fact that Cuba tried to warn the United States about this storm that was coming for Texas, but the U.S. government decided to ignore it because they thought the U.S. weather predicting system was better than Cuba and they thought that Cuba's was wrong. It is because of their arrogance that they left the island of Galveston and parts of Texas completely unprepared. Havana tried to get their message out by posting an article in their newspaper stating that a bad storm had just left Cuba and was turning into a hurricane and heading straight for Texas, but sadly Galveston never got wind of this article. I know I talked about the history of the storm briefly in my history portion, but I wanted to give you an idea of what the people went through during the storm. At the least, people living in Galveston thought they would get just a slight amount of rain from a hurricane that, as far as they knew, was headed toward the Florida and Louisiana coastline. When the town woke up on the morning of September 8, 1900, it was business as usual. People went about their morning routines. After about 8 a.m., it began to rain. The town had been going through a heat wave and the rain was a welcome cool down. People flocked to the beach to play in the ever-increasing waves. At first, people were having fun in the water until the waves started to crash upon the beach with such force it was dangerous to swim in it. The tide shifted and the water began to flood the streets of the town. Children ran outside to play in the water. Children were reportedly seen playing with sticks that they were using as boats to race them down the street. As the water continued to rise and wind patterns shifted, it was becoming evident that something was wrong. The tide became higher and crept inland. The waves crashed onto the bathhouses that were located on the beach, destroying them. At the orphanage, the sisters watched as a large sand dune that acted as a natural barrier that separated their building from the gulf began to wash away with every wave. The nuns hurried the boys into the girls' dormitory because it was the newest and sturdiest structure. After about 10 a.m., the Galveston's Weather Bureau gets a telegram from Washington, D.C., telling them not to worry because the winds will soon switch from northwest to northeast, turning the storm away just as they predicted. But the men working at the Weather Bureau building shot back a reply that they disagreed with their predictions and reported what they were seeing. They then ran to the wind gauge on the roof and saw that the wind was already clocking at 42 miles per hour and the rain gauge had disappeared in the wind. Soon after, the streets turned into rivers and the water began seeping into the foundation of the homes. Inside the orphanage, the nuns had the children sing a song titled Queen of the Waves. Queen of the Waves was a French hymn that sailors would sing during bad storms as a way to ask God for protection. Sadly, that protection never came. By mid-afternoon, the hurricane force winds and flooding waters were sweeping people away. John Bogdan was a weather observer at the Galveston Weather Bureau. He decided to stay behind in the weather office while his two brothers rushed home to be with their families. At 5.15, John went to the building's roof to check the wind levels, only to find that the instrument had been blown from its stand. Then he watched in horror as the barometer plummeted to 43.42 inches. 
lower than anything in the U.S. Weather Bureau has ever seen on land. Meanwhile, the water came rushing into the orphanage and the sisters quickly ran the children to the second floor. It was there that each nun used a clothing line to tie the children to their own bodies. Each nun tied up to eight children to their own waists. By evening, the sea level rose so high it swallowed almost the entire island. It would have been awful. There are no photos from this event, but there are some paintings and lithographs depicting the disaster, and they are really upsetting and scary to look at and think about. I can't even imagine what these people went through, especially being completely blindsided. The whole city was torn apart, first by the water and then by the winds that are believed to have been over 100 miles per hour. Everything was being swept away, creating a massive debris field. The only thing that stopped the water was all of the debris created a natural seawall when it piled up near the highest point of the island. By late morning the next day, the water receded and there was almost nothing left. It looked like it could have been the end of the world. Thousands of animals and people lay dead, scattered all over the island. For blocks and blocks, all you could see were the remains of buildings that now look like toothpicks and broken pieces of brick. The homes were shredded by the howling winds and crashing waves. And now we get to not necessarily the saddest because this is all sad, but the poor orphanage was destroyed like everything else. After the hurricane, the survivors had to take care of their dead. People began finding bodies in all kinds of places, and a group called the Death Crew was set up to go searching for the deceased. One day, a man found the body of a child in the sand, and then he saw that a rope was tied to his body, with yet another child attached to the first. This was one of the brave sisters who tied together as many children as she could to try to save their lives. Out of all of the children at the orphanage, only three survived. They survived by clinging to a tree that had not yet been uprooted. In all, 90 children and all 10 sisters passed away in the storm. To honor their deaths, sisters around the world sing Queen of the Waves on September 8th each year. I just wanted to give you guys the human perspective of what it was like for the people of Galveston during this historic storm. Because it's one of those stories that if you hear about it in passing as a historical bullet point or briefly in a side margin in a history book, it can be hard to grasp just how traumatic and awful this was for the people who lived in the town. And for the ones who died, just imagine the shock, fear, and pain they felt just before they took their last breath. And a lot of death could have been avoided if only men in Washington would have shoved their egos and pride and just listened to Cuba when they were trying to desperately warn them of the hurricane. The orphanage was destroyed in the storm, but the city built a new one, but this time they moved it to its new location on 40th and Q Street. On the storm's 94th anniversary, a memorial marker was placed along the shoreline of where the orphanage once stood. They also sang Queen of the Waves during the dedication ceremony. And also on the property today, 
a Walmart. Yes, that's right, I will be talking about a haunted Walmart, something I never thought I would do. But first, let's head down to the water's edge. Local legend has it that people have seen the ghost of a nun who walks along the beach. She has also been known to speak to people. The most reports of this ghost happen when there are bad storms heading toward the island. She has been known to appear out of nowhere and warn the beachgoers of bad weather coming and urges them to seek shelter. She then carries on her way down the beach only to vanish in the mist. Now let's cross the street to what is today a Walmart. And there are a lot of creepy things that happen here, from the sightings of nuns to children playing in the aisles. One of the main hotspots is the toy department. Staff have said that they have a hard time keeping their toys inventory on the shelves. Toys have been found all over the store, including sitting in the middle of empty aisles while the store is closed. Occasionally, those toys that are sitting all alone are electronic and they will go off as if there's a child playing with them. Objects also fly off the shelves often. Many workers have been walking down the aisles and had full racks of objects come flying at them. Once a bike was pushed off from the top rack, almost hitting a worker in the head. When the Walmart is closed, they have night shift workers restocking the shelves. Many of these workers have reported paranormal activity. After finishing up for the night and knowing that the aisles are all restocked properly and looking good, they start to walk back to the back of the building to clock out for their shift. Along the way, they often see items that they know they had just put on the shelves beyond the floor. Some items look as if they have been flung off the shelf because they are far away from where the items are on the shelf. Others look like they're purposefully placed as if to get their attention. And that would creep me out. And I'm not sure which one would creep me out more, the, the ones that have been flung or the ones that are very purposefully placed, like in the middle of an aisle or up on a shelf staring at you. I think they both freak me out, but I don't know. There's something about the more purposeful ones that look like they're just waiting for you to discover them that really freak me out. One time, a worker was taking trash out in the back to the trash compactor when she suddenly heard someone yelling for help. The worker ran back into the store to get security, but when they searched the locked area, there was no one there. A woman in white has been seen gliding around the store she does not interact with anyone or anything, but people say she often looks sad. The ghosts of nuns and their habits have also been seen wandering the store after closing hours. Many think they are still looking for the children that were lost in the storm. Another common occurrence is that the ghosts of children have been seen playing near the toy section. Some workers have also seen children all alone, and when they go over to help the child, they run away and then vanish. It is only then that the workers realize that the child they saw was in period clothing. Another sad occurrence is the report of a little girl crying for her mother. Workers have heard her crying, and when they find her, she is in a white early 1900s dress. When the workers approach her, she vanishes. Other reports are of disembodied giggles, running footsteps, and the sound of playing children. And the most creepy thing I can think of, children peeking around the ends of aisles at shoppers. Ugh, that creeps me out so much. I don't know what I'd do if I saw that. There have also been reports of the following balloon. 
This balloon follows customers and workers around the store. Many have seen a balloon floating down aisles and around corners. A customer went to the craft section only to watch a balloon float around the corner and come toward them. They got scared and left because it looked like someone invisible was holding the string and walking along with it. Once a worker was restocking after hours and he watched as a balloon floated down from the ceiling. He thought no big deal, it finally ran out of helium. But then he noticed that everywhere he went, so did the balloon. He got tired of it and grabbed the balloon and took it back to the party section, tying it to the rack. About 15 minutes later, he looked up to see the balloon coming across the store at him. Though he was scared, he chose to ignore it and finished his restocking as fast as possible and left as soon as he was done. You can get a lot of paranormal interaction at this Walmart, but it's hard to do a full investigation because the store won't let a full paranormal lockdown happen. But I was able to come across some people who were able to film inside the store while it was open. And while sure, some of them could have faked it, it's still creepy to see toys turning on and off and fall off of shelves when no one's supposedly around. Another thing that happens here is the equipment malfunctions and battery drain. Cameras and phone videos have been known to cut to black at random or even shut off entirely. My conclusion on this haunted Walmart is if there was ever a superstore to be haunted, this one would be it. Our next location is the Hotel Galvez. This grand hotel is seen as a symbol of the island's recovery following the destruction of the 1900 hurricane. City leaders were looking for ways to encourage tourists to return to the city. So they decided to follow through on an idea that they had in 1889. That year, their large beachfront hotel had been destroyed by a fire. Plans for rebuilding the hotel were started before the hurricane. They decided that rebuilding it was just what the city needed. The cost to build the hotel was $1 million, which at the time was a colossal amount. The hotel opened on June 10, 1911, and was seen by many as a symbol of recovery. The hotel quickly received the nickname the Queen of the Gulf. The hotel had 275 rooms, and not all of these rooms had restrooms. In fact, there was only one bathroom on the entire sixth floor. The hotel encouraged its guests to get out of their rooms and enjoy the hotel to socialize. There were many parlors available for the guests throughout the hotel. These parlors were designed as reading rooms, writing rooms, and game rooms. There was also a sun deck available so that guests could go enjoy the mild climate. The hotel was very elegant and ornately decorated. The room rate of this beautiful hotel was only $2 per night. In 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt used the hotel as a temporary White House while he enjoyed a 10-day fishing trip. During World War II, Hotel Galvez was used as a Coast Guard installation. President Eisenhower also stayed at the Hotel Galvez while he was still a general. Celebrities who stayed at the hotel include the Rat Pack members Frank Sinatra, Jerry Lewis, and Sammy Davis Jr. Other famous visitors include General Douglas MacArthur, actor Jimmy Stewart, 
and businessman Howard Hughes. The Hotel Galvez had been remodeled over the years, and fortunately, many original fixtures of the hotel have been saved or restored. A total of six hurricanes have struck Hotel Galvez. In 1915, another Category 4 hurricane hit the island. Now, you would think the people of Galveston would be terrified considering what the first Category 4 hurricane did just a few years back, but no, the people on the island had so much confidence in that new seawall that they actually went to the Hotel Galvez and had a big party. They reportedly danced the night away because that's how much confidence they had in that new seawall. And luckily for them, the seawall did work and the hotel had very little damage. In 1960, one of the first weather surveillance radars was installed on Galveston Island. In 1961, Hurricane Clara came through the Gulf of Mexico, striking the Texas coast. TV newsman Dan Rather was early in his career working for a TV station in Houston when he traveled to Galveston ahead of the storm so that he could report from the island itself. Before the storm hit, Dan stayed at the Hotel Galvez. As the storm approached, he set up his broadcasting system at the weather station. His reporting was the first live broadcast of a hurricane. He also showed the radar images for everyone to see, and that was another first for television. This was a big break for Dan Rather's career. After the hurricane, he was offered a job in New York for CBS. Today, the hotel is called Grand Galvez, the Queen of the Gulf. In addition to its 224 rooms and six suites, Grand Galvez has spaces for meetings, weddings, and other events. The hotel is beautiful and, as you probably guessed, extremely haunted. It certainly gives the Stanley Hotel a run for its money. So many people have stayed at this hotel that have claimed to have seen ghosts. It's hard to know how many haunt this hotel. The haunting started as soon as the hotel opened its doors. One famous ghost is Sister Catherine, one of the nuns from St. Mary's Orphanage. Her body, along with the body of many of the children that she had tied to her, was found at the same area that the hotel now stands. She has been seen in her full nun attire wandering the halls at night. The ghosts of children have been seen playing in the halls as well. Many have seen the ghosts of a little girl in 19th century clothing in the lobby of the hotel. She has also been seen in the gift shop as well as on the main entrance staircase. When she is seen, she is often bouncing a ball. One time, a construction crew was remodeling a section of the lobby when the group realized that a little girl was playing around their equipment. This could be dangerous, and one of the men went to the lobby staff to alert them that there was an unaccompanied girl playing behind the caution tape. When the worker came back, his co-worker was pale and wide-eyed. When he asked him what had happened, the worker said that she simply vanished when he went over to ask her to leave the area. Inside the main ballroom, the ghosts of hurricane victims have been seen. This room is used for all kinds of events, and when staff members set up the night before for either a conference or a wedding, they lock all the doors when they are done. These doors have windows, and visitors like to peek inside to take a look at the gorgeous ballroom. But when people look at what should be an empty ballroom, they see men and women sitting there in Victorian clothing, looking as if they're waiting for an event to start. The spa is located on the bottom floor, and workers have had all kinds of ghostly encounters. From hearing toilets flushing to seeing faucets turn on on their own, objects move all the time, especially when you just set something down. The sound of children giggling has also been heard. The restrooms down the hall from the spa is also haunted. Slamming stall doors, phantom footsteps, following people into the bathroom, 
bathroom and one report of the mirror being flown off the wall by unseen hands. If you go to this hotel, take as many pictures as you can because this is yet another location on the island where ghosts love to show themselves. And this is not a new phenomenon either. This has been happening ever since the hotel first opened. The hotel has two famous pictures hanging proudly on their walls. One was taken in 1911 as a promotional photo. A photographer was going around taking pictures to show off the grand new hotel to the public. And one picture he took was of an empty hallway. He took the photo because he wanted to showcase the grand architecture of the hallway. When he went back to develop the photos and he was reviewing them, he came upon the picture that he took of the empty hallway. Only thing was, when he looked close, it wasn't empty. In the photo, you can see what looks to be a woman in all black Victorian dress and a hat sitting in one of the chairs on the right side of the hallway. But that's not all. At the end of the hallway, there is also a silhouette that looks like it could be an apparition not fully formed. The Hotel Galvez has yet another photo hanging in the hotel that was taken in 1915. This was a picture of the beach promenade. In the picture, you can see people dressed in 1915 styles clothing, enjoying their time walking around and going to the different beachside attractions. But then you see it. Among all of the people, there is a figure of a woman that stands out because first, her outfit does not match what anyone else is wearing. It looks like, to me anyway, she's dressed in dirty night clothes, possibly work clothes from the late 1800s, but you'll have to see the photo. I'm going to post it on my Patreon, and it's just, it's different. And her clothes, are the more than anything else, really do stand out. The posture of this person looks sad, and she is looking out over the water and hands folded across her body, while everyone else around here looks like they're having a good time. The second problem with this picture, though, her face and hands are black like a shadow, like an inky black. There are men in black suits and women that have black parasols in the photo and her face and hands are darker than those. It truly looks like a shadow figure that has clothing on. And according to another article I found, this woman has shown up in other photographs throughout history. There is a painted portrait of Bernardo de Galvez inside the hotel as well. And this has, it's kind of creepy. This makes me think of Haunted Mansion-esque a little bit here. Um, reportedly, the eyes follow you while you walk down the hallway. So kind of like Scooby-Doo style. And also this painting, the face of Galvez has been occasionally known to turn into a skull. People have been walking down this hallway and look up at the photo, at the photo, at the painting, I mean, sorry. They look up at the painting and they suddenly see a skull where the face should be. And as they stare at it, if somebody else or anyone distracts them or they look away for a fraction of a second and look back, apparently the painting is back to normal. All the floors are haunted. Men, women, and children have been seen wandering the halls and vanishing into closed doorways and walls. Alarm clocks and TVs have gone off, turning on and off on their own all hours of the night. Some have even turned on while they are unplugged. But perhaps the most famous room at the hotel is Haunted Room 501, home to the hotel's own Lady in White. According to local legend, during the early 1950s, there was a woman named Audra who had fallen in love with the man who worked on a ship. Every time he went out to sea, she would stay at the hotel anxiously awaiting his arrival back to the port. After a while of dating, he proposed to her and she began planning their wedding. Not long before the day they were to be married, he went out on another sea voyage. She stayed in the hotel in room 501 while she waited. 
On the day he was to return, she walked up to the hotel's west turret to watch his ship come in. She was waiting and watching, but it never came. She did this for days until finally hearing that the ship had been lost in a bad storm. She did not give up hope for a few weeks. She spent each day and night watching the shoreline until one day, overcome with grief, she hung herself from the west turret. Sadly for Audra, the news that her fiancé had died in the storm was not true, and her fiancé returned to the hotel looking for her, only to hear that she had hung herself, thinking that he had perished in a storm. I could not find out if this legend was true or not, but the woman in white has been seen all over the hotel, but she mostly haunts room 501. People have reported hearing her crying, seeing her standing at the foot of their bed, and have watched objects move on their own. She has also been seen looking down on guests from the west turret. This hotel has so many ghosts that many people come to the hotel with high hopes of having a paranormal experience. If you are brave enough to check in, ask to stay in room 501, and maybe you too will have a run-in with the lady in white. Our next stop is the Galveston Railroad Museum. This museum first opened in 1983, but the building goes back to 1896, when it was the depot and headquarters for the Gulf, Colorado, and Santa Fe Railroad. In 1932, the Art Deco-style depot was built. The Santa Fe Railroad left Galveston in 1972, and the building sat abandoned for many years. Community support led to the restoration of the building and the creation for the Railroad Museum. Over the years, many artifacts have been collected to tell the story of the railroad and the island. During the railroad's heyday, over 40,000 people came and went through the depot, and it seems that some people never left the station. One of the most famous ghosts, and I personally hope I never run into if I ever went to this museum is the headless ghost of William Watson. Some legends say that William was a daredevil and loved to perform dangerous stunts on the tracks for the crowds. Other versions of the story say that poor William was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. According to the daredevil version of this story, on September 1st, 1900, he was performing one of his stunts while he practiced handstands on the train's cow catcher when suddenly he slipped, lost his grip, and fell. This decapitated him instantly, much to the dismay of the horrified crowd around him, and his head was found a quarter of a mile from where he fell. Notice that the date was only a few days before the hurricane, so I can see how this story may have not be as accurate or may have been embellished since it actually was reported in the newspapers. Whether he just slipped or fell while he was doing a dangerous stunt, we will never know. But one thing is certain, people at this museum have seen his headless ghost wandering around. Many think that he is looking for his head. Others say that he is still trying to shock and awe the crowd. Some have even claimed to see his headless ghost performing dangerous stunts on the trains. He also likes to move objects and hide them from workers. Disembodied voices, footsteps, and the sound of phantom train whistles have also been reported. A 
up next to the Van Alstyne House, also called the Gingerbread House. The Van Alstyne family was important to the beginning of the city. William Van Alstyne was one of the businessmen responsible for bringing the railroad to Galveston. His son, Albert, was the manager of the National Cotton Oil Company, and his wife, Catherine, was a world-famous singer. Albert and Catherine commissioned the house to be built in 1891. This three-story Victorian house was built on Broadway Street. It has 14 rooms and is 6,310 square feet. It's a colorful house that is nicknamed the Gingerbread House. During the hurricane of 1900, the couple brought in residents fleeing from the storm. In all, 50 people hid underneath the staircase during the raging hurricane. Much of the surrounding neighborhood was destroyed, but miraculously, the mansion survived. Catherine wrote in her diary that after the storm subsided, they were trapped in the home until the waters receded. All she could do was watch in horror as wagon loads of bodies floated by. Albert died in the house in 1926, and Catherine passed away in the home in 1940. They were both buried a few blocks away at the Trinity Episcopal Cemetery. Later, the house became Annabellum Antiques, and this seemed to be the start of reported paranormal activity. The owners experienced alarms going off whenever the building was empty. The police were called to the building so many times that they soon expected all calls to be false alarms. One time, though, when two police officers arrived to check on the building, yet after another security alarm, they received quite a shock. As soon as they entered the building, a toy truck came out of one of the rooms and rolled across the hallway towards them by itself. The owner of the antique shop removed a wall that was blocking access to the third floor. Once it was removed, the door of the attic would slam shut at different times during the day for no apparent reason. There was just something strange about the attic. Some people have claimed to see a man in the attic window from time to time. When they see him, he is dressed in Victorian period clothing, and he seems to hover. Some wonder if they are seeing the late Alfred Van Alstyne, who is still looking over his property. The owner of the antique shop also reported hearing voices from time to time. Many of these voices had different European accents. While these were spooky occurrences, the owner says that she never truly felt threatened by the entities in the shop. In fact, she gives credit to the paranormal activity for the fact that the store was never vandalized or robbed. However, the owner eventually left because it had too much paranormal activity. I don't think it was the fact that it was necessarily scary, but I could imagine that much paranormal activity, especially when you're trying to run a business, could get quite annoying after a while. Some people think that the paranormal activity in the home is due to the fact that the original owners are buried so close to the house and they believe that they come visit from time to time. Others think that the activity comes from ghosts of the hurricane who still see the house as a place of refuge. Another theory was that there were spirits still attached to the various antiques being sold in the shop. Whatever the reason, it looks as though the ghosts visiting the gingerbread house are here to stay. I have two more locations to talk about before we end our episode. Up next is the Bishop's Place. The Bishop's Place is a Victorian castle that was commissioned by lawyer Walter Greenham in 1886. It was completed in 1892. The three-story mansion was built from locally sourced granite, white limestone, and red sandstone. The interior handcrafted woodwork is from a variety of rare woods, including rosewood, satinwood, 
white mahogany, American oak, and maple. There are so many beautiful details to discover in this home, from wrought iron railings to stained glass windows and marble columns. 200 people ran to the home to seek shelter during the 1900 storm. Fortunately, the house survived with only minor damage. From 1923 until 1963, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Galveston used the home as a local bishop's residence. The diocese decided to open the house to the public in 1963. The home was declared a Texas historic landmark in 1967, and today it is a museum and is managed by the Galveston Historical Foundation and is part of the East End Historic District. Local legend says that Walter was very protective of his property, so he stuck around and haunts the building. When he is spotted, it is usually just before or during a bad storm. He paces back and forth on the front porch and seems to be very upset. Sometimes he has been seen pacing the halls inside the house. Is he worried that the house will not withstand the next storm? Walter being protective of the home might be an understatement because other paranormal experiences include people being pushed, scratched, tripped, and even punched in the face by unseen hands as they either pass in front of the home or even as they're just standing in front of the house admiring it. It seems that Walter's wife, Josephine, may also be present inside the home. Her most common activity centers around her card box. This card box contains souvenirs from her various trips, and this box moves around the home on its own. It seems as though Josephine may still be showing off the trip she took while she was alive. For our last location, we have Stewart's Mansion. On the west end of Galveston Island sits an abandoned, rundown mansion that was built in 1926. A very successful businessman by the name of George Seeley II built this Spanish colonial mansion as a summer retreat for his family. The 8,200 square foot home sat on over 2,000 acres. The property was next sold to Marco Stewart Sr., another successful businessman. He took ownership on October 13, 1933 as his vacation home. Marco Stewart Jr. inherited the mansion and the property in 1939. He changed the name to Stewart's Mansion and remodeled the home. Stewart Jr. passed away November 4, 1944 from pneumonia that he contracted while in New York. His widow Louise donated the residence to the University of Texas Medical Branch. The university used the home until 1968. In 1969, the property was gifted to the state and became Galveston Island State Park. The donation did not include the mansion, however, and it fell into disrepair. But the land this mansion is on has history dating back thousands of years, leading to the whole property having a creepy vibe and leading to many ghost stories and local legends.
Stewart's Mansion is said to be haunted by many entities. This may be because Stewart's Mansion sits on the former camp and burial site of the Karen Cow tribe at the west end of the island. There is evidence that the tribe practiced ceremonial cannibalism before the 18th century. The custom was to eat pieces of flesh of dead enemies, either as revenge or to collect the enemy's courage. About 100 feet from the entrance of the mansion is a historic landmark titled Lafitte's Grove. It reads, Fort and settlement established here in 1817 by the freebooter John Lafitte, who maintained headquarters here while preying on shipping in the Gulf of Mexico. The Battle of the Three Trees was fought here between Lafitte's men and the Karen Cow Indians, February 1821. Fort abandoned and burned in 1821 by Lafitte after his departure was ordered by the United States government. The three-day-long Battle of the Three Trees was caused by some of Lafitte's men kidnapping one or two Karen Cow women, and the tribe retaliated. Lafitte had about 200 men, muskets, and two cannons. Most of the Karen Cow armed with bows and arrows, and they were almost all killed. Over the years, people have reported seeing pirates and Native Americans walking on the property. People have also claimed to have heard the sounds of cannons and muskets firing in the distance. Sounds resembling cries and screams of people who are injured or dying have been reported. Most attribute this to the sound of the Battle of the Three Trees. There is also a belief held by some that the island has been inhabited by a pack of phantom black dogs since before the hurricane of 1900. Many think they are in fact hellhounds. One urban legend says that the 12 dogs are from a pack originally owned by Lafitte who bred them for hunting. The story claims that Lafitte ordered a voodoo queen to give him an army of dogs that would guard him and his home. Voodoo is thought to have been practiced on the island because Lafitte brought slaves from New Orleans to the island. The queen did the ritual over the puppies as they were born. A second legend claims that 12 black puppies were born during the middle of a bad hurricane and their mother was killed. A business owner took them in and cared for them, but the storm seemed to have made the puppies violent. Whatever the truth behind these dogs are, people are still seeing them to this day. When they're seen, they're described as large black hellhounds with flaming red eyes. Sight of these dogs is an omen of coming trouble or disaster. Some people have reported smelling wet fur, hearing growls, and feeling of a dog brushing against their legs. The most common thing seen on this part of the island is shadow people. Shadow people have been seen dashing from tree to tree and have even been seen for brief moments inside of buildings on the property. Near the old mansion, people have heard the sound of children laughing and playing, along with the phantom sound of piano music in the distance and laughter. As you can see from our tour today, Galveston is one haunted island. From the suffering of indigenous peoples and the once enslaved to becoming one of the most wealthy cities, then to have that city basically wiped out by a record-breaking storm, and then to have the city rebuild to become a popular tourist location, this island has been through a lot. And there is no telling what the next 100 years have in store. But one thing seems certain, the ghosts of Galveston are here to stay, to remind us all of the past and hope Hopefully, keep us from repeating it.
you guys all enjoyed today's episode of Historically Haunted. I had so much fun making this and I'm sorry it took me so long to finish it, but I felt like this deserved to be good and long and for me to really pay attention to the history of this location. I never heard of the storm of 1900 before in my life. I don't know if I just glossed over it in history class or what, but when I really looked into it, I realized that I had to talk about it because I don't think I'm the only one that has never heard of this storm before. I also had a lot of fun covering the fort, so thank you so much to Ben and Carissa for your great suggestions. The both of you helped this episode to be the longest episode I have ever made, and I'm very happy about that because I've always wanted to make a long episode. But I don't think I'm going to be making episodes this long all the time. This was kind of a one-off because it ended up being very hard for me not only to write all this information down, but then it became pretty tough for me to find time around my normal work schedule to record this. But I thought it was worth it, and I hope that it wasn't too long for you guys. I have some really fun things planned for my Patreons for the next couple of bonus episodes, as well as the next episode I'm going to be covering is Haunted Colleges. So I hope you guys are ready for that. I'm also starting to do my Halloween episodes, which I already talked about in the intro. So I am very, very excited and I am so ready for fall. It's already August at the day I'm finishing this episode. I started this really two weeks ago recording and it took me about that long to finish recording this one, but I still had a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much for coming with me today. If you have any questions about any of my sources or you want to learn more about any of the locations I talked about, I have linked to my sources down below in the show notes. If you want to get in contact with me or just say hi, you can email me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. Also, go ahead and follow me on Instagram. I post a lot more on Instagram than I do Facebook because I'm having a love-hate relationship with Facebook right now. Their algorithm is really messy and they keep changing how they do things. Every day seems like a new update for the business portal and I'm having a hard time figuring out how to use it, but I still post on there as much as I can. But you can still follow me on Facebook if you'd like. I also have a Facebook group page for us just to talk about ghosts and silly jokes and anything that's kind of lighthearted and fun. I talk about in my group page and um, you guys can post too. I kind of got a little community going on over there and it's really nice. You guys are so kind. So thank you guys all for your support. And I'm just, I'm loving getting to know all of you. This is just so cool. Links to my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are down below in the show notes. I'm also in the process of making a new logo for my show. I'm in contact with an artist right now. So hopefully I'll be able to get a new logo. And then once I do, I can start selling selling some merchandise and get an official website. Try not to count my kid, my kitchens. I'm trying not to count my chickens before they're hatched, but I am still very like optimistic and excited right now. I'm really enjoying the direction that I'm going with this podcast. I have so many great ideas to push my podcast further and get a little bit into the YouTube scene as well. But you know, these things take time. I have to save up money to do each step. So it's been very slow climb, but I finally feel like I'm starting to get there finally after all this hard work. And I could not have done all this without all of you. So thank you guys so much. And I better leave before I just keep rambling on into oblivion. This episode is already long enough. So once again, thank you all so much for listening to Historically Haunted. I cannot wait to see you guys back here really soon for another episode. I hope you all have a fantastic couple of weeks and I'll see you guys back here really soon. Bye everybody.